You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Hey, Alex, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Now, you were on your way to Montreal last week. How did that go? It was really productive. I ended up um, traveling on the th- uh, Thursday, got right into the studio there, spent a, f- a good several hours overseeing and reviewing what needed to be done and then tackled it on Friday and Saturday oh, and parts of Sunday. But, productive. Oh, not Sunday. Not Sunday. Came it, home well, Sunday? Well, it, it fell into the morning, but that's okay. No, did you just get back or have you been I, I got back on, let's see, a Sunday night. Excellent. So, All right. So in time for the time change, and uh, you got an extra hours of sleep. That's yeah, nice. That, it's a nice that worked travel, out very travel well time. For me. Yeah, yeah. It helps when you're uh, when you get that extra hour. No doubt about it. For it's, sure. And it's definitely um, a lot easier to handle than when you turn the the clock back. Yeah, we won't go there. Just we won't yet. go there. No. Um, today's <laughs> show is live. You can call us at four one six two four five fifteen thirty four, or please do follow us. Not or, but and. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub. RMC, and uh, feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast uh, platforms. And you can find the podcast also on the Radio Maria website, Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. And our show from last week is up um, with Jenny Deer. We got some very good response. It was an interesting topic. Um, we talked about... Uh, death and our approach to death it was i found it uh captivating uh what Mm -hmm. research showed so it is up and ready for you to listen to we've had some good response to it so uh yeah it's it's different from our regular topics right it is but it's great that we've got that sort of feedback it it is great that we got the it's nice to change things up a bit and again, as we talked about last week, death and our approach to death and working with people who are transitioning is not a topic that many like to talk about. So when you find someone who is so well-researched as Jenny was in the topic, it's, uh, it's enlightening. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, death is a part is it wrong to say a part of our existence, but it is a part of the human experience. And, um, you know, we got to face it. So it was a really interesting, uh, interesting show. Uh, but on to today. Now we talked a little bit about um, turning back or turning. What do we do? Spring forward, fall back. We turn the clock back. That's right. We got an extra hour sleep, which was great. But um, as the daylight hours uh, darken a little bit earlier, um, November, December often uh, is the time for people who are diagnosed with um, SAD, which is called, which is a seasonal affective disorder, this is around the time that symptoms can start appearing for people. Now, this is a diagnosed condition. So if you um, are experiencing or come to experience common symptoms such as fatigue, oversleeping, chronically low moods, craving for carbohydrates, and again, if this is satisfied, and if you do, if you do um, indulge these cravings, weight gain and difficulty concentrating. If you begin to experience these things, uh, do see your doctor. It's uh, it's important to be diagnosed because then you can take proper steps. And again, the shortness of daylight hours has an impact on uh, many things uh, physiologically. It's this is not uh, solely a um, a condition of the mind. This is a physiological impact on us. So um, I just wanted to 
to go over some things that you can incorporate into uh, your routine if you are someone who does suffer with um, SAD or if you are feeling or experiencing some of these symptoms. Um, Notably, this happens again November, December, but January seems to be the month where um, the impact is more fully felt, but uh, can happen any time through these months. So what can you do? Light therapy is one of the most... um, well-researched areas in the in this particular topic on this particular topic and many studies have shown it to be helpful there are light boxes that are dedicated specifically uh, to benefit those that are affected with sad and you can find them on the market so do take your time and look at uh, look at what you're buying they should denote that they are specifically for this this condition so um, in tandem with light therapy is the support of our circadian rhythm. So this is why um, I believe that the light therapy works well. Our circadian rhythms influence um, the physical uh, and mental behavioral parts of, of our being. And when there's a disruption to the circadian rhythm, this can mitigate um, conditions and symptoms of a seasonal affective disorder. So Again, conditions such as uh, change in light exposure, timing of eating, exercise, these all impact the circadian rhythm. So light therapy and supporting the circadian rhythm go hand in hand, as uh, does supplementing, supplementing with vitamin D. Sunlight is essential for the production of vitamin D, and supplementing during um, the winter months is often extremely beneficial because we are not being exposed to proper sunlight. Of note here, and I like to mention this all the time when I I recommend people supplementing with vitamin D, is to know your vitamin D levels. Um, There is an optimal range that you should be in, so a quick blood test can help determine if you are low or if um, you're one of the not too few, not too many that are on the high end of vitamin D um, within your, your blood levels. So do get them checked. Trying to maintain um, good exercise is important for many things. Um, Mentally, it's very good um, to support, again, the circadian rhythm. Exercise helps to balance your insulin levels, so again, helping with uh, perhaps the carbohydrate uh, cravings. And it also also just makes us in a better mood for, for for many reasons, but it, it, it's there's a sense of accomplishment. That it also, when you're trying to stick to a regular regime of exercise, it gives you purpose. Mm-hmm. So some people that are are extremely um, ill affected by um, sad, they don't want to leave the house. So really trying to push yourself, even if it's walking, um, is extremely important for for your mental well being, and eating a well balanced diet. That touches just upon every aspect of health, so I'm sure you're not surprised uh, that I, I bring this up. But getting proper nutrients into your system is extremely important uh, to help your body function, to help mental health. Gut health and mental health are intrinsically linked together, so supporting your gut health is very important as well. And keeping in touch with friends. You know, let people know that this is something that um, does affect you and and try and maintain a good social circle. It just will help um, brighten your mood. Again, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, social, uh, the social aspect and community is a huge part of, of our health. So a few tips, again, in trying to maintain a proper sleeping pattern is, is important. A lot of this does feed back into the circadian rhythm, but... Um, you know, just trying to keep these habits and pushing pushing yourself to try and maintain um, these things can help. Um, you know, the doctors will help you. There are medications out there if need be. But, uh, you know, do take care. Know the signs and uh, take care of yourself. Uh, today's guest, this is an interesting topic. One, again, something that really haven't touched upon is food allergies. Our guest is Vandana Sheth, and she is an award-winning registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and owner of a successful private practice in the Los Angeles area. 
She has over two decades of experience and specializes in intuitive eating, food allergies, vegetarian nutrition, diabetes, and family nutrition. Author of a recently published cookbook, My Indian Table, Quick and Tasty Vegetarian Recipes, she's a dynamic speaker and an in-demand health and nutrition expert for local, national, and international media outlets. When she's not wearing one of her professional hats, she loves to travel, spending time with family and friends, gathered around a table of delicious food, wine, dancing, and going on long walks with their dog, Shadow. Uh, Some of the learning points that we will be covering today, what exactly is a food allergy, what is the difference between a food allergy and food intolerance, and what are the most common food allergens. And we will be back with Vandana after our break. I was blinded, you gave me eyes to see. I was going under, you reached out to me. No, there's nothing you won't do to pick me up and pull me through every hour, eight days a week, yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Vandana, thank you for coming to the show today and joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a fun show. This is a topic that touches so many people, isn't it? I'm assuming that's why it became a specialty of yours. It sure is. It um, has both a personal and professional connection to me. So I look forward to diving into this topic. Oh, excellent. What, What are the connections? Let's start there. Yeah, well, um, I've been a dietitian for over two decades, and um, when I gave birth to our first uh, child, our son at three months of age started having reactions, and that's when it hit home personally that I had a child with life-threatening food allergies, the whole journey of up and down, trying different foods, seeing reactions crop up, and so I dug deep into the research, and um, it definitely has been it's given me a different perspective as a mom to see how food that actually is nourishing can also be scary and dangerous for some mm-hmm. because your body reacts differently. And so we've transitioned through all the different stages of schooling and now 
um, I'm thrilled that my son is in college and thriving. So I look forward to sharing success stories and what works, what doesn't, and what to keep in mind with other families that are impacted with food allergies. Excellent. You know, my son... um my kids have varying levels of allergies, more more seasonal and, and to pets, things like that. But my one son um, has an anaphylactic uh, peanut allergy, and I will get into exactly what anaphylaxis is. I don't. Were you mm-hmm. given the just on a personal note? Um, I've, I felt that it was sort of my fault. I had eaten a lot of peanut butter, and I don't like peanut butter. And I had a lot of peanut butter when I was pregnant with him. And um, that was the first question the doctor asked me. Is that a fallacy? Or is that, do moms have to be um, guarded about eating uh, certain foods that are known to be highly allergenic? You know, it really, we still don't have all the answers to that question. And the worst feeling as a mom is to feel like you did something wrong to cause this. And so my biggest piece of advice to families that are considering getting pregnant or who have food allergies running in their family history is to have a variety of foods. Just rotate all the different foods you're doing rather than focusing or overdoing any one thing. That way your child is exposed to a variety of things. Um, but I totally understand that feeling because I was checking back into what I did and what I could have done differently, but it's just one of those things. And if you have a family that has a history of asthma or allergies, not necessarily food allergies, it might manifest itself and increase your child's risk for food allergies. It really, it was the oddest thing because as I said, I'm not really, I was never really a peanut butter eater and boy, mm-hmm. I just I just craved it. Anyways, so that I think that it is important that you bring up that topic. There's no really scientific connection that that has been yeah. found to connect yeah. the mum's yeah. diet to. Right, there hasn't been, and so usually we, I usually recommend that my clients have a variety of mm-hmm. food choices in their diet. Make sure it's uh, you know whole, it's a whole foods, a variety of grains, definitely include nuts, seeds, um, etc., so that you're baby is exposed to that in vitro. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Now let's, um, there are some, uh, there is a ground for confusion between what a food allergy is, what a food intolerance is, where those lines cross. So would you um, give us what you feel or what the real definition of a food allergy versus a food intolerance is? Sure. So with a food allergy, what happens is our immune system reacts as if We've got invaders. The foods that are normally, um, you know, safe for us, our body reacts as if it's harmful. And so our immune system starts producing antibodies. And that can lead to symptoms that can range from mild to severe. So mild symptoms could be hives, you're itching, you have um, runny nose, runny eyes, maybe some stomach issues. But the severe symptoms could be wheezing, difficulty breathing, dizziness, a drop in your blood pressure. So with food allergies, it is a serious condition. It can be life-threatening. Whereas when we talk about food sensitivity or intolerance, that does not involve your immune system. That's where you have the inability to process a digestive food. And so you might have more digestive-related issues. The symptoms could be gas, bloating, diarrhea, inflammation, maybe headaches, brain fog, anxiety, etc. So it is typically not life-threatening when it comes to food intolerance or food sensitivity. Um, this, this may be out of uh, the realm of the conversation, um, but just when you were saying that uh, an allergy initiates an immune response, is there a connection to allergies and autoimmune disease? You know, there might be, but I definitely am not an expert in that area, so I would rather focus well, just strictly focus on, on the, the allergies. It's just It just pops yeah. up. Now, with a food allergy, the more somebody is exposed to um, the particular food that they have an allergy to, will that increase symptomology or no, not necessarily? You know, the reaction time and the reaction sensitivity is very unpredictable when it comes to food allergies. Sometimes it could be one small bite. Sometimes it could be something that you've been exposed to in mild forms and you thought, okay, I just had a mild reaction, I'm fine. But you could end up, the first reaction could be deadly or the you know, tenth reaction could be pretty severe. So you never know. 
You don't know. Well, let's let's now differentiate um, what an anaphylactic reaction is versus um, more of the symptomology that you were talking about where it's not life-threatening. So when we talk about the severe symptoms, some of those would include swelling of your lips, tongue, your throat, and that blocks breathing. You start having difficulty swallowing. You have shortness of breath. Um, you have a drop in your blood pressure. You might have loss of consciousness. You might have a very um, weak pulse. And in general, what I've heard uh, families describe it as you're experiencing a sense of impending doom, like something is just really wrong. You feel that sensation. And these symptoms can either occur alone or they might occur in combination with milder symptoms. And that would lead to life-threatening anaphylaxis. And that requires immediate treatment. Okay. Now, when we're talking about the initiation of of foods to babies, um, there have been all sorts of different ways that have been suggested that um, children are initiated into different level or different types of foods to prevent allergies. Um, Do you believe in this type of approach to working with children? um, Or is it just happenstance when an allergy pops up? You know, we have looked at the data and there are some promising studies. So they did the food allergy prevention and treatment study in uh, the LEAP study. And that provided evidence that the age at which a child first eats peanut and the frequency of the peanut in the diet can influence whether a child develops an allergy to peanut. And um, this was definitely a significant study. In 2017, these findings... Um, they found more, they followed these kids and they did the leap on the study or trial and they showed that decreased peanut allergy risk among children who were exposed or who consumed peanuts throughout their early childhood. And this continued even when kids avoided peanuts from five to six. So again, these are promising studies. This can help a lot of people. But if you have a strong family history of food allergies, if um, you have a child already with food allergies, I would be careful and I would do any kind of initiation or introduction of these foods with your medical team involved because you want to make sure it's in a safe place. You're doing it right. Well, to, to that end, have you found or been able to work with uh, clients that have come through an allergy? So if they're allergic to... Uh, eggplant have you are you mm-hmm. able to work with them to to have them get past this allergy or is our allergies ever outgrown they are you know a lot of and so when we talk about allergies it's important to identify of course you can react to any food mm-hmm. reactions have been identified to almost 170 foods in the united states but the top eight allergens are the ones that we're following and all the nutrition food labels are based on those top eight allergens, identifying them in common words. And um, those, um, a lot of kids do outgrow many of these food allergies. The ones that tend to be lifelong are the nuts, the tree nuts and peanuts. But more and more, there are treatment methods that they're looking at. Research is looking at some kind of uh, desensitization protocol that might help kids and adults who have those life-threatening reactions. Well, when we're talking about food allergies, too, I mean, when we're talking about whole foods, I want—I would like you to give us the list of whole foods that you've seen that are, are common allergens. But do parents also, parents, adults, people who have allergies uh, themselves, are there um, allergens that are, are commonly used in processed foods? So particular allergens that we need to look for on labels as opposed to in mm-hmm. whole foods? Yes. And so when we talk about the major allergens, we're talking about milk, egg, peanut, tree nuts, wheat, soy, fish, and shellfish. And these are responsible for most of the serious food allergy reactions in the United States. And the one that we're starting to see more of an uptick is sesame. And so right now, sesame is not listed as a top allergen on food labels. But it's definitely an emergent concern, and sesame has caused severe reactions, including fatal anaphylaxis. So when we break these foods down, you might find many products that have some components of these major allergens. 
So soy, for instance, could be many pro- products. You could find milk and milk derivatives in many products. You may find eggs. You would find um, wheat. You would find nuts. And now more and more I'm seeing um, flowers made from nuts used in different products. So it's important to really pay attention to labels because that's your true guide. And not necessarily, it may not necessarily have all the allergens that you're allergic to, but at least it will list the major allergens. Um, okay. Why do you think, is it because... You know, there are are kind of two schools of thought from what I understand of allergies. One is, you know, you're born with it or it's, it's, you know, hormones change and and the way we digest. But the other um, school of thought is that we're eating these things all the time. Do you believe in that train of thought that because eggs are prevalent in a lot of foods that we eat, um, the wheat is common in everything we eat? Is that true or is that a myth? You know, again, uh, unfortunately, there's no hard science or evidence that shows there's one specific reason why we are seeing this rise in food allergies. What we are seeing is maybe family history appears to play a role in whether someone will develop a food allergy. So if you have other kinds of allergic reactions like eczema or hay fever, you may have a greater risk for food allergies. It's also true if you have asthma you might have a greater risk for food allergies. And as far as our food sources go, it, there is a thought that maybe the way our food is processed, is uh, developed, might be a cause for some of the rise in food allergies. There is a thought that maybe the clean hypothesis, where we are keeping everything so clean um, that our children are not exposed to some of these food symptoms, and so they're reacting to good things in a bad way. So, again, we still don't know. A lot of research needs to go into this area. Does organic versus non-organic, do you find that comes into play at all? Are people that generally have a wheat allergy or a soy allergy, can they cope if, if they're eating organic? I haven't seen that necessarily because no. as far as nutrition goes, it's about the same. As far as if you have a lower... Um, immunity and you're susceptible to certain conditions, maybe having an organic product might be better. But again, nutritionally, there's no difference. And I haven't seen a specific difference in terms of eating an organic or conventionally grown product as far as food allergic reactions go. Okay. I think we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, what I'd like to discuss is um, some testing. We're going to get into the testing involved and other very interesting topics around uh, around this. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Every I love to praise your name. I love to lift you up. We bless your name. Sweet Jesus, 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 Jesus. I love to praise your name. I love to lift you up. We bless your name.
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about food allergies, and our guest today is Vandana Sheth. Welcome, uh, everybody who's coming into the second part of our show. Vandana, lots of questions that I've had come to me um, through some social media veins. So if you don't mind, um, can I tackle a few of them with you? Sure. Okay, I had someone, um, and I know this is actually, this is an interesting one. For people who have done a little bit of research, the um, the notion of IgG and IgE comes up. Um, I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, uh, well, the person said, what's the difference? Um, so if you could, if you could explain to, to him what the difference is between the two. Sure. So first of all, when we talk about suspecting food allergies, it's important to always get evaluated. Um, and diagnosed and treated by a medical professional team, specifically a food-certified allergist, a board-certified allergist. Um, And there are many different tests to do this. The common ones are the skin prick test, the blood test, the next step would be the oral food challenge, and the last step would be the trial elimination diet. So when we talk about the skin prick test, let's talk about what happens. So... To diagnose a food allergy, your allergist may use a skin prick test to measure the presence of IgE antibodies for the suspect food. So food allergies are typically, the symptoms are caused by the interaction between a food allergen and an antibody known as IgE or immunoglobulin E. And to diagnose this food allergy, your allergist may use a skin prick test to measure the presence of the IgE antibodies for the suspect food. And it's typically not that expensive. It produces immediate results and can be performed in your doctor's office. However, the skin prick test can produce false negatives, um, but more often they can produce positive tests which may not be accurate. About 50 to 60% of the skin prick test yields are false positives. So mm, That's high. It's, it's high. And so any of these tests, it's important to know that we are using this just as one tool. It's important to use that along with your family history, your food history, your symptoms, and put it all into a comprehensive piece. So something to think about why we're having these results are when you eat, our digestive system actually breaks down food proteins into tiny pieces. And these allergenic proteins may be so small that the IgE antibodies are unable to detect them. So the food is actually safe for you to eat, but your skin prick tests and blood tests can't mimic our digestive process. Interesting. So since the food proteins are bigger, when they interact with your skin or blood, it's easier for the antibodies to see the allergens and attack them. That's why your tests may show that you're more sensitive to some food than you actually are. Okay. And then IgG, is that a test? So I typically see it with the IgE. And then with the blood test, what happens, again, same thing. I usually see the tests that that involve the IgE. Okay. All right. So IgG is is, is not something that is commonly tested for? So at least as far as the both certified allergists that I work with, the typical tests are either skin tests or blood tests. And the ones we look at are... The IgE. The IgE. So, okay, so let's get into that blood, the blood tests and the, the skin prick mm-hmm. tests, and, and maybe people can get a better understanding. If you have a banana, um, and mm-hmm. then you, you, know, you seem to have a reaction, and you don't go for one of your tests for two or three weeks after you've had this banana, is the test going to be able to pull out the fact that yes, you may have an allergy to the banana, or is it too long? Is there a timing phrase, I guess, is, is what I want to ask you, between a food that you've eaten or and the testing, or are these antibodies continually circulating? They are continually circulating, maybe in higher amounts when you've had a food recently. And so when it comes to the blood test, what happens is, again, same thing. We are testing both the blood and skin tests to detect the food-specific IgE. Well, with the skin test, the result is immediate. 
but the blood test result actually will take at least several days. Mm-hmm. And unlike the skin prick test, the blood test is not affected by antihistamine. So, for example, say you had some symptoms and you took an antihistamine, you still can go in for the blood test. That's not necessarily going to be affected. And um, about 50 to 60 percent of the blood tests and the skin prick tests will yield that false positive results that we talked about. Okay, so when you're so, working with somebody, you're you're taking into consideration all of this, um, and I guess a, a lot of the onus goes on to the person you're working with to maybe write down the foods that are bothering them or that they suspect bothering them, and then you put together a protocol that pieces together a whole bunch of things. Exactly. So there's no one test or one parameter that we use when we are helping someone with food allergies. We want to have some kind of food journal and have symptoms recorded on there, how you're feeling, what's going on, um, if there was anything unusual going on, if you ate at somewhere that you haven't typically had. So take all those pieces into account along with the test. Okay. Now because we've we've talked about childhood allergies, and I guess that's sort of the topic that's that's most prevalent. But um, personally, I had a reaction to shellfish after my second daughter, so I didn't eat that for a few years. How common are food allergies for? Um, how common are the prevalence of new food allergies for adults? So what's interesting is we're seeing more and more adults with food allergies that are cropping up to even foods that you had that were considered to be safe all your life. So the most common allergies in adults are actually allergies to shellfish, milk, peanut, and tree nut. And um, I believe I saw a percentage. I'm going to quickly see if I can pull up that number. So what they found is in the United States, about 32 million people have food allergies. And nearly 11% of people age 18 or older that's more than 26 million adults have food allergies. Are they developing them in adulthood? Some of them are, not necessarily all of them. And I'm trying to see if I can break down that number for you. If It'd I be interesting number, if you could if you could give us insight as to why an adult in their 30s or 40s would all of a sudden become allergic to a food. Yeah, so here we go. So... There was some data that was looked at, and they found that based on medical records, at least 15% of patients with food allergies were first diagnosed in adulthood. And more than one in four adults with food allergies report that all their food allergies developed during adulthood. Nearly half the adults with food allergies reported developing at least one food allergy during adulthood. Is there any causation that has been noted? You know, I haven't looked at that study, but I'm going to provide a link to you. It was published in the JAMA Network Open. It was a prevalence and severity of food allergies among U.S. adults. This was published. This was open in 2019. And that that that's a, re- a resource that for people to look into at? This. That dives, yeah, dives into it. So what else? Yeah, and so I'm going to see if I can find that study, and I'll send you a link so you can add it to your show notes. Oh, that'd be great. I'm assuming for me, anyways, personally, it was hormones. So uh, as hormones change, as our body changes, I guess we're always adapting and readapting to things. Now, are there specific diets? So when you're working with somebody, are one type of diet more... um, more in tuned with fighting off allergies compared to another type of diet. So I'm not talking about individual foods, but mm-hmm. so is the Mediterranean diet a better diet when you have food allergies or is, is a higher fat diet? Have you seen any links that way or is it all very individualistic? It really is very individualistic because food allergies manifest so uniquely in each individual. Um, there is no exact pattern that different clients follow. And so my focus in my practice with clients with food allergies is to keep the diet or their eating pattern to be as expansive as possible rather than restrictive. So often when clients come to me when they suspect food allergies, their diet is so restricted and I worry about meeting all your nutritional needs Mm -hmm. and you're so afraid to eat food that my goal is to really calm things down to gradually expand food choices so that you can really enjoy food and have fun and really, you know, so be safe 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, are there specific supplements that you uh, use as a go-to that can help support uh, the body um, for people that are suffering from allergies? So uh, my philosophy, of course, is food first. Mm-hmm. So based on each individual client, we always look and do a complete nutritional assessment. And based on if I see that they have to avoid a certain group of foods because of the allergens, then I talk about supplements. But I don't necessarily recommend just supplements on their own. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you have multiple food allergies, I always say like a one a day, just to give you a baseline of some of the key nutrients would help. And... Um, I often find many of my clients are deficient in vitamin D, and that we know plays a key role in how we feel. So that would be one I would consider. Mm-hmm. And omega-3 fats, again, we've looked at that might help promote overall good health. Mm-hmm. Now, practically speaking, food allergies can um, pose quite a challenge in social spheres, restaurants, We're coming up to certain holiday seasons. Do you work with your clients on how to navigate these situations, both adults and children? Children, children may even be more uh, of a of a worry um, because you know they may not be as thoughtful when they're around food. But do you talk about lifestyle uh, ways to deal with allergies? Absolutely, because when someone has a food allergy, it doesn't just impact them; it affects their overall quality of life. And there is data that shows that people with food allergies are at a high risk for depression, for anxiety, for stress-related issues. And so in my practice, the goal is to really identify ways to keep things safe but fun, Um, keep it as normal as possible. So as we head into the holidays, I often focus on how do we stay safe, allergy safe over the holidays. So we um, come up with strategies. So if it's a typical holiday celebration, we address what are the key concerns? What are the foods that are going to be served? Who is the host? How can you have that conversation? So that it's not just what you eat, but it's what's being served that might be scary for you. So for example, with us, when our son was uh, young and we are avoiding peanuts, nuts, sesame, our focus was that at all our family gatherings, we, you know, hoped and we actually discussed this with the family. We did not have any food served that had any of those major allergens because when he was young, we didn't want to take a chance and have him accidentally touch any of those foods. But those are conversations I have with my clients to discuss those food choices, to discuss safe spaces because you should feel safe with your family and at home. When we talk about dining out, coming up with strategies of restaurants you're going to, if it's a restaurant you go to on a regular basis, definitely call ahead, talk to the food service staff, discuss your food allergies so that it's not a surprise when you get there. You can enjoy life, you can travel, you can eat out, but you do have to be vigilant. Now, when you're working with people to try and reduce their allergic reactions, is there a protocol that you put in place? Are you working on gut health, um, or are you more of strictly avoidance? It's a, to me, that's an interesting piece. Mm. And so with food allergies, right now there is no cure. Mm-hmm. And so strict avoidance is the best way to avoid a reaction. So I stay on the, on the realm of strict avoidance with something that we know you are actually truly allergic to and then as far as introducing those foods back in i usually have my clients do annual checkups with their allergists have tests have uh, numbers data to back up when we feel like their numbers have calmed down we consider maybe an introduction or a challenge but that would be done with the board certified allergist in their office Mm -hmm. Now, it's important, uh, you brought it up, you you talked about it briefly there. It's important, um, the notion of uh, the dietary, you know, people who are avoiding particular groups of food may be not supplying themselves with particular nutrients. Um, There's always a way to fill that void, isn't there? Yes, there are definitely ways, but it does take a little bit of manipulation then, you know, trying to find alternatives. So a registered dietitian nutritionist would be an amazing resource for families with food allergies, especially find someone 
who specializes in food allergies, um, you can visit eatright.org. That's the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. And they list dietitians who offer services. And you could find one that's near you if you want to physically meet someone. Or you could consult with a dietitian virtually and get some kind of nutrition coaching in place. Mm-hmm. Also, there's an organization called FAIR. And that's the Food Allergy Resource, uh, I'm sorry, Research and Education website. And they have a lot of resources. That would be another great resource. Excellent. Now, before um, we talk about your book a little bit, you, you touched on this also as well, but I didn't, uh, we, we sort of went on a different vein. Exposing children to bacteria, letting them play in dirt, um, mm-hmm. not being so clean. Do you recommend that um, to parents? Is that something that you believe in or has that been established as a way to strengthen the body systems? You know, there was an interesting um, book, and I actually met with um, the scientist who had put this book out. It's called Dirt is Good, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by his topic, and it was the advantage of germs for your child's developing immune system. So that would be a good book and resource I would recommend to your readers if they're interested. And it talks about um, different ways to expose your kids to good germs to build that immunity. Yes, we have a high propensity of using antibiotic soaps and antibiotic, Mm -hmm. you know, mouthwashes and everything. And I think in this day and age, it's becoming very apparent that exposure to to bacteria is uh, is good, you know, in 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 our in our world of microbiome and so forth. But let's give um, if we're heading towards our end of the end of the show here. But tell us about your book, My Indian Table: Quick and Tasty Vegetarian Recipes. Um, What what sort of provoked you to write this? Does this come from a place of, of your personal experience with your son and allergies, or is this just uh, a, love, a love topic that you took on? Yes, so um, this was a passion project. So I was born and raised in India. I came to the United States in the early 90s. And when I came here, um, I was a lifelong vegetarian. I realized that food was so different from what I grew up with. Um, I also recognize that often when people talked about vegetarian foods in the United States, they had no idea about the different spices and flavor profiles that I was exposed to. Mm -hmm. So it was not just eating salads, but food was so much more than that. And um, the Indian food that was served in Indian restaurants was very different from what I grew up with. So I was passionate about sharing my resources. But as a dietitian, I always had health in mind. It was delicious food, but it had to be nutritious and it had to be easy and convenient as a working mom. So that was the passion behind this project, to put a book together where any, anyone can just look through it, find recipes. All of them can come together in 30 minutes or less and really enjoy more plant-based foods that are delicious and fast. I do find that um, we uh, in Canada, anyways, I, I'm not as as in tune with the United States diet, but um, we don't expose ourselves to a lot of the spices that are out there. And not only are they just so uh, profound in their flavor profile, they're so healthy. All the different uh, spices, and you know, we're, we're when it uh, comes to cancer care and so forth, we're lo- looking at a lot of uh, plant based um, nutrients in the cancer cancer care in general health as well. But I, I, I love the fact that you're exposing people to all of these different spices and seasonings and encouraging people to try it. One seasoning, I'll just on a personal uh, note, we were in Hungary and I bought some paprika there. And I've mm. been using paprika. I was never really a seasoning that I used too much. And, you know, just using that, it, 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 uh, it really is... It, it's interesting, and it's a great thing that you're exposing people to all these different spices. Thank you. Yeah, I, I am thrilled with the response I've gotten, and um, it was fascinating. At a book signing when I did, there was this young mom and child who were at the event, and this baby, Caucasian baby, who actually kept asking for more of the sample, and it was a dish that was filled with vegetables and spices like turmeric and ginger and garlic. And it was so wonderful to see this child exposed and enjoy this 
this dish. It's, I, I, you're yeah. right. It's it's it, exposing children at a young age is so beneficial, and the, and the health benefits of these seasonings are are just wonderful for them. Yes. Where can uh, people find your book if they are inclined to uh, buy one? Sure, they can find that on Amazon. It's available both in the Kindle form as well as in the paperback. Excellent. And soon it'll be available at any bookseller in the next week or two. But right now it's available on Amazon. Congratulations. And just uh, for people that are interested in following up with our conversation and learning more about you and, and what you do, can you give us your social media sites? Sure. So I am on Instagram at Vandana Chef. That's just my first and last name. On Twitter, Vandana Chef RD. I'm on Facebook. I'm also, you can reach me by my email, nutritioneducator at gmail.com, or visit my website, which is vandanachef.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been a great show, a very informative again. Um, Next week takes us into, oh gosh, we're, we're heading towards Remembrance Day. Vandana, uh, and I said, I put the, uh, the stressor on the, the wrong syllable, so I apologize. I said Vandana, so no Vandana, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a great show. Thanks so much, Kathy. I just want your listeners to know that you can thrive and survive with food allergies. Just get the support you need. Excellent. Thank you so much, everybody. We will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.